Let us open our Bibles, and our scripture reading for this afternoon is from 2 Kings 6, verse 8 to 23, and that is our text. And we will also read 1 John 4, verse 1 to 6. So the text for this sermon is the reading from 2 Kings 6, verse 8 to 23. So 2 Kings 6, verse 8. Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing, And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, Go and see where he is that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, Surely he is in Dothan. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, And they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. Now Elisha said to them, This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. So it was... When they came to Samaria, that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men, that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and there they were, inside Samaria. Now when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? But he answered, You shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set food and water before them, that they may eat and drink, and go to their master. Then he prepared a great feast for them, and after they ate and drank, he sent them away, and they went to their master. So the bands of the Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. So that was our text, and now we'll also read from 1 John 4, the first six verses. 1 John 4, verse 1 to 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not not of God. 
And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world. They speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So far our reading. The sermon that I'm about to read has been prepared by Reverend Reuben Bradenhoff, Minister of the Word at Free Reformed Church of Mount Nasura, Western Australia. And after the reading of the sermon, we'll sing in response from Psalm 68, verse 7 and 8. Beloved in Christ, there's more to life than meets the eye. Appearances can be deceiving, and you rarely get the whole story. These are the truths that we accept, yet we still let ourselves be fooled by what we see. We often focus on the outward, while the visual has become so important that it defines reality. So they say that seeing is believing, or if something wasn't recorded on video, it didn't happen. But there's more to life than meets the eye, much more. Nowhere is this more evident than in the things of God. The Lord our God is invisible, dwelling in unapproachable light. We do not see the Father's hand or the real presence of Christ or the foundations of his kingdom. We also don't see the realms of the spirits, the good angels or the fallen. Yet scripture tells us that there is unseen reality all around us, far more than we can take in with our eyes. For much of what we see is only a facade, a shiny veneer on top of a deep ugliness. At times it can look like Satan's kingdom is winning the day, like it's not worth following Christ, but God helps us to see more, to see reality as it really is. Such is the theme of our text. It is a story about vision, seeing beyond the intimidating appearance of earthly strength. For when God opens the eyes of our heart, we are enabled to behold the Lord in his glory, his power, and grace. I preach God's word to you from 2 Kings 6, verse 8 to 23, on this theme. God reveals that he is the great and gracious king in a story about a spying prophet, a startling display, and a surprising mercy. So the first point, a spying prophet. Throughout Elisha's ministry, times in Israel were politically unsettled. Because of where the nation was situated at the crossroads of the Middle East, Israel had a lot of neighbors, and many of those neighbors had an aggressive streak. Not long ago, in two kings, the Moabites had gone to war against Israel. Before that, the Syrians had invaded from the north, while Egypt was always a threat from the south. And quietly growing in strength were the Assyrians. Surrounded by hostile people, Israel could be attacked at any moment. And let's put that into a covenant context. The Lord had warned his people that this would happen if they rejected him as God and would disobey his law. He said that one of the covenant curses was a suffering inflicted by other nations. As instruments of God's judgment, they would come and make life miserable for the Israelites. 
Just, just think of how this happened throughout the period of the judges. Israel was a thoroughly idolatrous nation at Elisha's time. So in verse 8, so verse 8 isn't really a surprise. Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel. This king was possibly Ben-Hadad II, a man who made a career out of winning wars and imposing heavy burdens on other nations. He was experienced in warfare, and we can hear him just plotting his next incursion into Israel. My camp will be in such and such a place. That's verse 8. As the Syrian army marched into Israelite territory, the question of where to stop each night was important. It was from these temporary bases they would launch their attacks. So they probably aimed to camp near Israel's key settlements or whether they knew where Israelite troops were patrolling. It sounds like the Syrian army is free to move about the land without much trouble. So before long, you'd expect there to be a decisive battle with the Assyrians crushing the Israelites and seizing some of their towns. But the Israelites have a secret weapon. His name is Elisha. For this is what happens. The man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Assyrians are going down there. That's verse 9. Somehow, Elisha has gained inside knowledge of where the Syrian army will be moving, and he passes this information on to Israel's king, who is unnamed here, but is probably Jehoram. Elisha tells the king, who then tells his commander, This is where the enemy will be encamped. Avoid that area, or be on high alert so you can defend the cities. And so every time the Syrians prepared to launch their attack, they found that the Israelite troops were ready and waiting for them, and it wasn't advisable to continue their plans. I like how it's put in verse 10. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. This kept happening until it drove the Syrian king to total exasperation. Now, we never find out how Elisha got this access to information. Was he really a spy, as I've called him, physically listening in to the conversations of the secret camps, or perhaps lying, relying on informants and then putting together top-secret intelligence reports for the king? Or is this another display of the prophet's super-awareness, for he knows people's thoughts and can see right through their deceptions? We're not really sure. But it is clear what God is doing. He's using his servant to frustrate the plans of his enemies and to protect his people from harm. God does that so often in scriptures, sometimes in incredible ways, using weather or geography to defend, defeat hostile armies, turning enemy troops against each other, even prolong the daylight so that the battle could be finished. And now this, using inside information to win the day. The Lord is a mighty warrior for the sake of his people, for God has given his word that he will preserve and protect us. The care that God shows is even more remarkable when you think about, think about the covenant context. Apostate Israel deserved no such kindness. God should have left them to their own battles to lose, but the Lord is immensely gracious. He is slow to give up on his people. Even when we insist on rebelling against him, God is patient and ever faithful. Let us never use that as a license to keep on sinning, however. May we never allow that wicked thought to enter into our minds, such as, God will take me back even if I stray. He'll show mercy, so I'll just plunge ahead into evil. Instead, let God's deep compassion and his patience in Christ move you to love God more, 
to worship him for his greatness and to strive for holiness that is pleasing to him. So back to our story. As the Syrian king is getting riled up, he called the servants and said to them, will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? That's verse 11. No wonder he asks this, for if you keep on planning troop movements, but every time your enemy makes exactly the right counter move, anyone would think that there's a spy in your midst. But the king's servants know what's happening. Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king, he tells the king of Israel the words you speak in your bedroom. Verse 12. That may be a colorful exaggeration, but the word of Elisha's ability has spread far and wide. It's the prophet of God who is single-handedly keeping the Syrians' attacks from taking place. The king sees they won't win as long as Israel's secret weapon is operational, so he resolves to go and capture the prophet. The Syrian army encamps around Dothan, the city where Elisha and his servant are living. By night, the Syrians come, and the city is quickly surrounded by horses and chariots and a great army, verse 14. It doesn't look good. This is the first time that Elisha's life is threatened, unlike Elijah, who is often hounded by his enemy, who, yet who always escaped. But from a human point of view, Elisha's chances of survival here are poor. Being in a besieged city means that all avenues of escape are cut off. A siege is often a terrible waiting game. Those trapped inside are just waiting for the inevitable attack, even as their food and water slowly run out and the hope of rescue fades. When I read our text, I wonder if Elisha knew that this was going to happen. Time after time, he had charted the next move of the Syrians' army. So why would it be any different this time? When the Syrians marched against Dothan, why would his knowledge have suddenly failed now that his own life was on the line? So did he know and still choose to stay in the city? Did he have an idea about what God was going to do, how the Lord was about to make a startling revelation of his glory? And this leads to our second point, a startling display. Try to imagine the terror felt by the people in the city of Dothan. At night they went to pee went to bed in peace and quiet and secure behind their city walls. In the morning, they awake to a vast army all around, enemies intent on breaking down the gates and wielding their swords. Elisha's servant gives voice to this fear felt by all. Alas, my master, what shall we do? That's verse 15. This is the same fear-filled cry so often sent up by God's people. We look at our circumstances and our despair We're not surrounded by an invading army, but we feel besieged by worries about our family, overwhelmed with guilt, and choked by cares. What shall we do? How can I get out of this? Where can I turn? There's no hope. We see our earthly circumstances, and it can be as if that's all we see. This family tension, this impossible burden of sin, these hostile co-workers, Satan's constant attacks and vile temptations, It's hard to find any hope when you're under siege, and that's because we are spiritually short-sighted. We see the present difficulty. We see our limited resources, and we just can't see past these things to rescue or release. But God tells us there's much more to life than meets the eye. He tells us there's another reality behind the appearances, an entire dimension, a spiritual world, and that's what is truly real 
and truly powerful. Only we need eyes to see the glory of God, and we need a heart to believe that he is near and acting on our behalf. In our text, he grants a vision of this reality in a special way. For Elisha answers his servant, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Verse 16. First, underline that command, which is found so often in Scripture, more than any other command. Do not fear. These are words that anxious people like us need to hear. Then the prophet sets up a contrast between the visible army of the Syrians and the invisible army of God. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. It may not look like it at the moment, but God's people always have a majority support. We are secure. Even in those times when we appear most weak and our enemies appear so strong because God is for us and on our side. Now, it's one thing for Elisha's servant to hear this, that we are protected and secure in the Lord. It's another thing for him to see this, see it and be vividly impressed by the reality. So Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes and he may see, verse 17. And the young man's eyes were opened and he sees. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha, verse 17. Notice that it's not just a vision or a dream, but it's a glimpse of reality. There really is a protective barrier all around the city, a glorious heavenly army just waiting for orders for their king. Take a closer look at this army. God's army is made up of horses and chariots, like most armies in the Middle East, of, Middle East at that time. As Psalm 68 says, the chariots of God are tens of thousands, even thousands of thousands. Verse 17. But these are horses and chariots of fire. So often in scriptures, fire signifies the presence of God, whether at the burning bush or on Mount Sinai. Our God is a consuming fire, and his army is a fiery host. These are the same horses and chariots of fire that Elisha saw on the day that Elijah was taken up. So it's a great and in and invincible army that is being held in reserve as the enemy digs in around Dothan. Yes, the Syrians look scary, but they are no match for God. They may have many thousands of troops, but they are completely outnumbered by the heavenly host. Elisha's servant is getting, getting a rich assurance that even the greatest political powers in the world are subject to the rule of God, of Almighty God. Ben-Hadad isn't in charge of Dothan. And neither is King Jehoram, but only God the Lord. And the Lord's eyes are always on his covenant people. Beloved, the good news is that this reality hasn't changed. We still have God's promise, Psalm 91, verse 11. He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. Every day we can enjoy the security of our Father's care, for he commands his angels to shield us. We don't see the angels. We might not even think of them but they are present, great in number, great in strength, and sent by our loving Father. Think of Jesus' words in the Garden of Gethsemane. <coughs> Even as enemies seized him, Jesus reassured his disciples, do you think that I cannot pray to my Father and he'll provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Matthew 26, verse 53. Things looked bad at that moment, but appeared as if God's plan was crumbling. But in reality, 72,000 warrior spirits 
were ready to come to his aid. If it wasn't, if it wasn't time for Jesus to go, God would have stopped the enemy in his tracks. The cross had to happen, of course, and its, bl- and its blessed result was to make our position more secure than any earthly security you could ever find. In Christ, we are truly safe. The very worst that the devil can bring against us is nothing for our Lord to handle. Ephesians 6 speaks about our present spiritual warfare. It tells us that behind the evil we see in this world, all the invincible forces of Satan and his demons who are determined to destroy us. And it can look hopeless at times, like there's no way to defy these temptations to resist the pressures of this present age. But then the Spirit tells us to put on our spiritual armor, the unseen armor of God, through whose power you are able to stand. Be strong in the Lord and in his great strength. Listen to what John writes in his letter. You dear, you dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. That's John, 1 John 4 verse 4. Isn't that essentially the same message that Elisha gave to his servant? The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Christ is in us. He is greater than Satan and all his demons and all the allies that he has in this world. Christ is greater than any trouble or guilt or temptation that we face. Since he is the resurrected Lord and King, Christ lacks no resources and he is willing to use them for your benefit. The next time that you are severely tempted or in grave trouble, God will not give a vision of horses and chariots of fire in order to encourage you. But you may yet depend on the beautiful truth of verse 16. Those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. For our king is greater and his power is stronger. Pray for open eyes, like Elisha prayed. Ask God that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you will know and believe God's truth. Don't look only at the things you can see. Look past what is visible and external and fix the eyes of faith on the unseen Christ. That is what faith is, after all. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Do not fear, for the unseen Christ is with you and will not forsake you. He promises to clothe you with his armor and guard you with his angels and to fill you with his spirit so you may stand fast. And that's our third point, a surprising mercy. Elisha has reassured his servant, so now it's time to deal with the Syrian threat. He marshals the heavenly force available to him by praying to the Lord. Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. Verse 18. They will be struck, not with a sword, but with blindness. The word here suggests that there was a bright flash of light causing a loss of vision, similar to what happened to the men of Sodom in Genesis 19. If you ever played a game where you had to walk around blindfolded, being led by a partner, you will understand how helpless these Syrians felt. They were completely vulnerable to whatever the Israelites wanted to do. So Elisha goes out to them and offers to lead them to a place where they'll find their man. Helpless and blind and ignorant, they go along with him, except for he leads them to Samaria, Israel's capital, a city full of well well-armed troops. And once they're all safely inside, Elisha prays again that the Syrians will regain their vision. It's, it's a nearly identical prayer to the one that he prayed for, for his servant. Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. 
Verse 20. God opened their eyes, and what did they see? They see Elisha, the man they have been hunting, but they also see that they walked right into a trap. They can, you can hardly fault the king of Israel for being excited about what's next. My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? Verse 21. With the Syrians trapped, completely vulnerable in their shock, the Israelites have a great opportunity to take out one of their arch rivals. A quick slaughter here, and the Syrians will be removed as a threat for coming years. But then the, then the surprise. Elisha refuses to give permission to the king to kill the Syrians and orders something radically different instead. Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Verse 22. The Syrian army will be spared. Not only spared, but treated well with food and drink. It's a strange twist of events and puzzling. In it, we see that Elisha is really on neither side of this war. First, he protects the Israelites, and then he prevents the massacre of the Syrians. Elisha isn't loyal to one side or the other because his loyalty is to God above all. This is what God wanted him to do. And why? Our text doesn't tell us why God spared the Syrians. It just gives one result in verse 23. So the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. This act of mercy leads to an end of the border wars. For a while after this, Israel is allowed to enjoy peace. But the peace is short-lived. After God's surprising mercy, the Syrians go away, but they do not go far. Read one verse further, and you'll get an account of how Ben-Hadad laid siege to this very city of Samaria and how the siege went on and on in great misery. And so this might be another reason that God spares the Syrians in our text. He will still use them to judge his people. The Syrians will be an instrument in his hand to discipline his children. No, we don't know exactly why God has mercy on the Syrians, but you wonder if it's part of the ever-widening grace that God shows to the nations as the Old Testament keeps unfolding and as the time of Christ draws near. Not only Israel, but also the nations Also, the nations can have a place under God's love. In God's mercy, even the Gentiles can be saved. Think of Naaman, the army commander from Syria, healed and enlightened just in the last chapter. He was brought to a marvelous confession. Now I know that there is no God in all the earth except for in Israel. 5 verse 15. God had compassion on Naaman so that he could draw draw him to himself. Might an act of mercy in Samaria have done something similar? If the Syrians really had eyes to see, they would have beheld the goodness and the grace of the true God and how it was capped off that day by a great feast of eating and drinking. That was unexpected mercy, undeserved kindness. Instead of dying, they live. Instead of going home defeated, they go home with full stomachs and happy hearts. God had showed them a little, a little something of who he is. In a way, we can see the surprising mercy at Samaria as a faint picture of the gospel of salvation. For this is what Christ does. He sets the captives free. He gives sight to the blind. He grants life to those who deserve death. Christ's, Christ invites to his great feast all who trust in him, and he nourishes them with his own flesh 
and blood. May God give us faith to trust in this loving Christ through every circumstance of life. May God give us eyes to behold his beauty, to see that Christ is greater than any earthly treasure, that he is stronger than any foe. Amen.